Welcome everyone to episode 62 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Chief David Freeman from Cleveland Heights. So before we bring in Chief, I, I do want to take a second. I want to thank my girls at Carney Strong for coming in and, and kind of bailing me out in, in a time of need. Um, I feel it's important to bring you listeners to show every week, but I was not really capable of doing it myself. Um, having my... Uh, my good friend pass. I needed to concentrate on uh, doing everything right for him and taking care of his family and uh, putting on a, a memorial service funeral of all funerals in which I was actually able to, I think, pull off. But, uh, you know, I was just able to make a call to Lillian and, and said, this is what's going on. Can you help me out? And done. She was on it, bringing in Tanya and Christine and put out a great show. And, uh, you know, the show went on, which is, which is what I wanted. But, um, so I, I, again, I just want to take a moment and thank those girls. Um, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, I definitely owe you. And with that, I'm just going to start, stop rambling and let's bring in Chief Freeman and, and kind of talk about everything he's been through. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Chief David Freeman from Cleveland Heights. Good afternoon. No, excuse me. Good evening, Chief. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Jim. How about you? I clearly, I don't even know what time of day it is. <laughs> <laughs> Locked in a room. I have no idea. No windows. We're, we're in a basement today, so the kids don't interrupt. Just so you know, we may have some, like, hyperactive golden retriever interruptions at some point when the family gets home so well that's okay good deal so real life how about uh explaining to my listeners kind of a little bit about cleveland heights okay so um we're a full-time fire department i've got um 78 line and staff members i've got three staff and 75 line members um we run two stations each station has an, an engine, a truck, and a squad. And then the primary station has a backup squad as well. That's a jump squad that comes off of an engine company. We get about, um, last year we were close to 7,500 calls. So it's fairly busy. Our minimum manning on, um, on a shift is 16. Um, guys do a fantastic job. So we do you know, full EMS, full fire suppression, and we have a single fire inspector that works for us. I've been there for, she's 27 years now, a little over 27, coming up on 28. And I've, I've been chief of the department for the last eight years. So. Very nice. So is that, that's where you started your career as well? Correct. Yeah, I've been there my entire career. The only, one and only fire department. I was an engineer prior to that. So. Okay. Hey, that was going to be the question I asked. What did you do beforehand? Right. Yeah, I started there when I was 27 years old. Okay. So almost 55 now. I'll actually be 55 in three days, four days. Well, happy uh, early birthday to you. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. It's a good deal. So, um, you know, this kind of the topic of, of this uh, podcast is going to be going over behavioral health. At your department, going up the ranks being there as long as you have was there any type of 
behavioral health talk at all, peer support? I mean, did anything exist or was it all too often I hear that suck it up buttercup kind of mentality? Yeah, it, you know, it, it wasn't that there was nothing official. Um, I don't know that, that, I mean, even now I'm working to make something official, which has really gotten derailed bad by this whole COVID situation. You know, it's hard to get anything started with this going on. Um, you know, there's not even any training available right now, but I'm, I'm working on putting some together. As I came up through the years, there were, there were individual guys that would support you, but department-wide, officially, we didn't really have anything. Um, and until about the time I got promoted to chief, we promoted a lot of new officers. So every single officer that we have now, um, with the exception of one, well, actually two, we've got one that's gonna retire real soon, was promoted to that rank after I became chief. So there's kind of been a shift, you know, the, the guys are more open to it, I think, than they used to be. And especially the, you know, the young kids that we have, and we've got a, we've got a fairly young department. I've hired, in my eight years, I've hired um, over two thirds of the department. So we've got a, a lot of young blood in there that, that's more open to new ideas and they're not so close-minded about stuff like this, you know. But I think even some of them, you know, it's, it's still, it's an uncomfortable subject. It's not something anyone wants to talk about around the dinner table, you know? No, that's good. But there's, you know, that's understandable. There's, there's still that ability though, when you're at the station, even if it's not at the kitchen table to mm -hmm. after dinner, have a cup of coffee and have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with, you know, one of your crewmates and uh, kind of discuss stuff. I mean, that's, that's still there at least, but Correct me if I'm wrong, when you're chief and you're, you're kind of a little bit different than most places, you're not actually at the station. You got moved to a completely different location away from right. all your firefighters. Yeah, so we, since I've been at the department, it's always been like that. I'm the only chief that I know of that's at City Hall, exclusively at City Hall. And it's not, you know, I, I know fire stations where City Hall is located with the fire station and they're there, but I am completely separated. You know, and there's, I, I try to make it over as much as I can, but, um, it, you know, it doesn't always happen. It depends on what's going on. And, you know, I try to make stops there, try to stay connected, but it's really difficult. And I'm actually in the process right now of correcting that and moving back to the station. So the, the thought process is I've, I've got an office just being completed over there. And once that's complete, I'm going to start making the transition back over. And, and I've got about little under three years left in the drop before I have to go. And by the time I leave, I would like to have the chief's office over there full time where it should have been all alone. It was, um, I don't know why it was ever separated. It's just a weird thing. That disconnection from your crew members on a personal and professional level, that has to be difficult. It is. It's, it's tough. You know, um, that was, honestly how a lot of my trouble started or at least came to light I should say you know I'd I'd been a master of suppressing feelings my entire life you know I had I actually had a room in my head I called the vault you know and I talked about it to my wife a couple of times I used to tell her you know I got this vault in my head I store everything in and if the door ever gets open I'm in trouble you know I'm going to be in a ball on the floor and I wasn't far from wrong. So I, about two years after I got promoted to chief, so about six years ago, I was um, driving into the city. I was going down Carnegie Avenue, coming up on Cleveland Clinic. And we had a call running at the time and it was a, um, 
a call for a, a young child that, that wasn't breathing. And as the call progressed, I heard my command car arrive on scene and then announced that he was taking the family to the hospital. And I knew then it was bad. You know, it was a bad situation that the kid probably wasn't going to survive. And I, I literally just broke down completely. I had a pullover. I pulled into a business alongside the road. I was just sobbing. You know, I couldn't even function. And I sat there for a few minutes trying to recover. Couldn't do it. Called my wife. She kind of talked to me for a while. And eventually I was able to, to get myself composed enough to drive. And I kind of got back on the road. I went back home, took a personal day and spent like, you know, basically the whole day trying to recover from it. And eventually the next morning I went back to work, you know, like nothing happened. And, and I went along okay like that for a few years. And then five years ago, so about a year after that, um, my son was graduating from basic training at Fort Benning, my oldest son. And I went there for his graduation. We were staying in a cabin and I had the same exact type of thing happen to me. And I don't know if it was just being in a place that was familiar to me because I was in the army for 10 years just being on that base kind of like flooded me with all these memories and the same exact thing happened. Um, you know, thankfully again, my wife was there for me. I kind of broke down in the back room and, and just couldn't function. You know, I just lost it. And it was weird for me because I've always been so in control of my emotions and feelings. And it was just strange for me to get in that place. Is it, was it almost like, it sounds like trigger, like you, like even for that first call, did it? Did you have something that was very similar to that that brought you, kind of snapped you back, or for some reason were you just able, even if you weren't there, you were able to picture it? I don't really know if it, it got to that level. If it was just more the emotion and the thought of it, you know, that it just kind of broke a damn gate open that um, that I didn't even know existed. Honestly, I can, you know, I'll, I'll share with you a little bit my. Um, my childhood was, was rough, to say the least. You know, I had an alcoholic father who was very abusive. My mom kind of, at, at times, she would be the most wonderful mother in the world, and then it would kind of switch, and she would become the abuser, you know, with the kids, and, you know, physical, mental abuse, and a lot of mental and physical abuse from my father, not so much physical with the kids, um, he kind of confined that to my mom, but um, what I know now from, from the research I've done and the things that I've gone through is that all of that stuff that you bring with you, you know, the way I describe it, it's like a water bottle, right? So if you come into the fire service with your water bottle mostly really full, it doesn't take much to push you over the edge. And um, as I went through this whole process of, of hitting the bottom and then coming back to recover, I recognized through the program that I went through that the childhood stuff was impacting me on a, on a very, very deep level. Although most of it, I still don't remember, honestly. I probably remember, you know, 10% of my childhood. The rest of it, I've blocked out completely. Although memories keep kind of creeping back in. Okay. So <clears throat> this stuff kind of keeps compounding. Right. At, at what point do you realize there's something here, there's something going on and how many you do something about it? So it, it, it all kind of started, um, I worked with the Ohio Fire Chiefs on the Ohio or the Safety and Health Committee. And a couple of years ago, we went through and we did a, we did a, a statewide survey. 
So we sent it to everyone who was listed on the, on the Ohio Department of Public Safety as a firefighter or an EMT. So everyone in the state got it. The same people who get their notifications for certification renewal all got it. We had a pretty good return. We had um, somewhere between seven and 8,000 surveys returned. And we were looking at the numbers and the numbers were horrific. I mean, we're looking at, um, I actually brought a little cheat sheet to remember all this, but we had 81% um, of the people that we surveyed exhibited at least one sign of PTS. You know, it doesn't mean they were in full-blown um, post-traumatic stress injury, but they were starting to exhibit signs. And what we saw was the sleep disturbances were, were number one, which most of us have, and that was 81%. And then we had 58% with depression, 48% with unexplained anger, 47% with social withdrawal, 20% with um, substance abuse, almost 18% with, with high-risk behaviors. And then this one kind of really horrified me. Um, 5.45% um, had engaged in domestic violence because of the stuff they'd gone through, you know, passing it on. And, and like they say, hurt people hurt people. And to me, that one really kind of struck home because with the survey group we had, we're talking about 396 people who passed on their pain to a family member or wife, kid, you know. And to me, that was just unbelievable. So as I went through this process and we came, we looked at these survey results, I made the, the cardinal error where I asked them what we're gonna do about it. And so you know how that works out. I got volunteered and I was like, okay, that's fine, I'll take it on. And so I've been working on it for, for about 10 months now. And I'm, I'm starting to get really close to having this um, post-traumatic stress injury document put out for best practices for the state. And it's gonna be, it's actually mostly um, lifted from um, BC and, and Canada. So they had a really fantastic document they developed and I spoke to them about it and asked them about using portions of it. And basically what they did was they gave me the thing and said, use whatever you want as long as you help people. They gave me the entire document. So I've, I've changed a lot in there to make it fit our needs, but uh, I think it's gonna be really helpful to a lot of people when we get it done. So as I went through that process, um, I decided I needed to do some more research and strengthen my background in it. And I went to um, First Responders Conference in Columbus last year on November 7th. And that's run by Sean Thomas, who's a um, sheriff's deputy from King County in Washington near Seattle. And her husband had attempted suicide. And she made the determination that someone needed to do something and she decided it might as well be me. So she put together this fantastic program where they bring together all the resources in the state. They have a two-day conference and all the individual programs that exist come in and talk about their program. She had a bunch of um, very intimate speakers that came in and talked about their struggles. You know, a lot like I'm doing now, but different guys who had attempted suicide or, or had a friend who killed themselves. And it's kind of a team that travels with her around the country. And when I went through this program, um, I'm taking notes. And one of the things, my wife was with me, I should, I should get, bring up that point. So she sat next to me and I decided um, as I'm writing, I wrote down how would I become a licensed social worker? Because I thought, well, here's an avenue to another way I can help people. I'd looked into a PhD in clinical psychology and it was just, you know, so expensive and so much time it was going to take. And when I saw that, you know, this speaker had a, was a licensed social worker who was working exclusively with first responders helping them. 
and she had a master's degree and I'm thinking, okay, I could do that, you know, a couple of years, I can, I can knock that out. So I wrote that down and my wife took my notebook and was looking at it and then she wrote in it and she pushed it back. And what she wrote was heal yourself first. So she wrote that in my book and, and, and I, I honestly, I was pissed because I'm thinking, do you know, you, you like, I still had that attitude where I'm perfect. You know, there's nothing wrong with me and I'm going to fix the world. You know, like a lot of us, we, we get into this field because we're rescuers. We went through something and now we're going to fix everyone else. And it meant so much to me that it's tattooed here on my arm now. You know, you can see that. I actually had a tattoo that says heal yourself first because every time I write anything now, I'm looking at that. You know, and it kind of drives that point home. It doesn't let me forget. So after, after she wrote that in my book, that was the first day. The second day, there was a speaker from this program in Newark, Ohio called um, Save a Warrior. And it's savealwarrior.org. People can look it up. And basically what they did was they call it a, um, like a suicide detox program for people who are on that verge. And it's for veterans and first responders. And she kind of like tricked me into filling out the application because we went to dinner that night. And um, we ordered drinks and then we're getting ready to order food. And she hands me her phone with the application open and says, fill this out. And I said, what is it? And she said, it's an application for that Save a Warrior program, the guy who talked today. And I said, I'll do it later. And, you know, she's, she knows me and she said, I, I'm not ordering food until you fill it out. So I spent like 15, 20 minutes filling out this application and um, went through the whole process. They called me the next day from the program and um, a great guy named Brian Haggard, he's one of the intake coordinators for the program. And he's talking to me a little bit about the program, explaining it. He's going over my, my answers that I'd given him. And um, my question to him was, um, he asked, well, he said, do you have any questions about the program? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working with the Ohio Fire Chiefs trying to develop this document. Do you have any way I can just come in and, you know, watch the program, see what it's about, see if it's a resource we can use? And he said, yeah, we have, um, we have something we call a witness seat. But when you come and you're a witness, you actually go through the program because we don't want to differentiate and, and set you apart and, and have you interrupt, you know, what's going on with the healing process. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Um, you know, what do I need to do to do that? And he said, he, he, you know, he's talking to me on the phone and he says, dude, that ain't you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, did you even look at how you answered these questions? So um, at that point, he said, we need you here, but we need you here so you can get better. And I kind of broke down at that point because, you know, it was weird. It's, it's one thing to have your family care about you or people that you know, but to have a complete stranger actually want to help you, you know, and I was in complete denial about everything. Um, what I hadn't told my wife was that previous to this back in August of last year, actually it was early September, um, I planned to kill myself. And I had a timeline and everything because I had overlapping insurance policies. One of them expired at the end of December. And I was thinking, okay, I, I don't know when I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. It's got to be before then. And I didn't want to push it right to the last day. So it looked suspicious. And, um, you know, I developed a whole plan. I was going to, I'm a mountain biker. I knew where there was a really high cliff at with a path near it. And I was just going to ride off this cliff, you know, and, and be done with it. And 
I think the most shocking part to me when I went through that whole process of this plan and everything was that it didn't bother me. You know, I wasn't upset. I didn't, you know, I didn't shed a tear about it. Um, I didn't get worked up about it. It was like right in a grocery list, you know, and to me that was, it was, it was shocking, you know, looking back on it now, especially because at the time, you know, you're in a different place and you don't think about it that way. But when I look back on it now and I'm like, wow, you know, um, to be making such a final plan, something that's, that's going to impact everyone, you know, and to do it like it's not a big deal, like you don't even care. You know, it's just crazy. What, what do you think kind of led up to that? Well, I know now exactly what it was. Um, so what I talked about with the childhood stuff, when I went to the Save a Warrior program, um, at the time it was five days. They've actually worked it down to three and a half now. And the great thing about this program is they house you, they feed you, they offer you all this help and it's all peer supported. There's, there's no professionals there. And the, um, the whole process is, is it's literally like the best way I can describe it without getting too much into the details, which I, I don't want to do is it's like five days of ripping off scabs, you know, so they really get to um, the heart of the matter, which is when people are in this situation psychologically, what it all comes down to and, and what's really driving the, um, the internal trauma you're carrying around is unmourned grief. So it's, it's things you went to, through, things you witnessed that you've never dealt with, you know, and you continue to carry that with you. And what I, what I found through research and through what I went through is that once you're able to do that and, and, you know, like I said, pull those scabs off, open up that wound and grieve what happened to you, you know, that, that fear, the sadness, the guilt you carry around through your life, the blame you place on yourself, until you deal with that, you're never going to get better, you know, and, and you can go to, you know, years of counseling. And it, it can take a very long time to get to that point, but the program they've put together does it in a very short time frame. And I don't, I don't want to discount the amount of hours you spend there because it's, it's literally like, you know, 17, 8, 10 hour days you're going through. So you're going through a lot of really intensive stuff in a short period of time. But I think the thing that makes the most difference is that it's, it's peer supported. You know, you've got, in my case, I had 10 other guys there with me who were fire police and veterans who had gone through the same stuff I had for the most part. And, and it was, it was, you know, it, it makes it okay because what they do is the people who they call shepherds in the program, the guys who are kind of guiding it along, they're the first ones to share and they come up and share their story. And you listen to these guys, what they've gone through and you're thinking, wow, you know, I'm me too. You know, I went through the same stuff. And they're sharing it and they really make the point that, you know, for once in your life, you can relax, you're safe here. You know, you've got guys all around you that, that are going through the exact same thing as you. You don't have to hide it anymore. You can let it out and you can, you can get to that point where, um, the best way I can describe it is, there's actually a psychiatrist who talks about this and I can't recall her name right now, but she talks about a you, you know, this you down into a valley. 
And until you get down to the bottom where that unmourned grief's at and start mourning it, and you know, that's, that's literally like the breakdown, the sobbing, the tears and everything. And you're allowed to stay there for a while before you come back up the other side, you're never gonna get better. And, and our first response as human beings, and we all do it, is when you see someone like that, who's suffering like that, the first thing you wanna do is fix them, right? You wanna put your hand on your shoulder, give them a hug, say it's gonna be okay, pat them on the back. And that's the absolute worst thing you can do because you interrupt that process. They never get to drop to that bottom of that you and, and mourn what's going on. Instead of that, they, you know, they jump across and they're on the other side again, but they've never dealt with it. So you continue to carry it with you. And there's, um, there's varying levels up and down from the people that I've seen and I've actually gone back and helped with the program. So what they use is a kind of a, a gauge to see where you're at with the childhood stuff, which can be very important is they use a test called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey that was developed by Kaiser Permanente. And um, it's 10 questions, 10 very basic questions. And they're all prefaced by before the age of 18, were you or did you? And then it's questions like, were you abused? Was there an alcoholic in your home? Um, was a family member abused? Was there sexual abuse? Did a family member go to prison? And it's 10 questions like that that you answer. And at the time that I, I did it, I was a seven, you know? And um, since then I've had another memory come back and now I'm an eight. So I eight out of 10 on this test. And in my cohort that I went through, um, our average score was around a five. And when you look at the statistics that Kaiser Permanente has collected over a very long period of time with, you know, hundreds of thousands of respondents, anyone who has a four and above is, is somewhere like 2,500 times more likely to commit suicide. And, and to me, that's, that's an amazing statistic, you know, and, and it really drives home how that childhood trauma can impact you through your entire life. Now, there were guys in the program who, who literally had zeros. You know, they had a great childhood, but their problem was more the moral injury they suffered on the job or as a veteran. You know, the, the guy who tosses a grenade through a window on a raid and, and kills two children or something, you know, um, over in Iraq. Or, or someone who's, you know, seen child abuse over and over again, or seen someone murder, you know, kid murdered just those types of things that, that now become this moral injury. So there's really two things you're looking at, the, the childhood post-traumatic stress and then this moral injury. And when those two things overlap like that, it becomes complex PTS, which is a, a whole nother animal. And that's where I was sitting at. Um, the, the program director will tell you, he'll say, when you have that moral injury level, I can fix that pretty quick. You know, that's, that's easy to deal with. It's the underlying stuff. It's, you know, the thing under the thing that we have to, to clear up first to get you to that point is the more difficult part of it. And I don't think that that's something a lot of people recognize. I did a, um, I did a kind of an informal survey monkey in Cuyahoga County and I didn't get a ton of response. I got about 90 back and I actually gave, the, the survey was actually the adverse childhood experiences survey. And so when I got the numbers back, kind of my hypothesis was that people that go into this career field are going to be those rescuer types who want to help other people because of what they went through. And it, it kind of validated what I was thinking because I had about 25% that had ACEs scores that were concerning, you know, a three or four or above. 
there were actually a couple that were nines and tens. Of course, it's anonymous, so I don't know who the heck they were. I wish I did, you know, so I could get them the resources. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what drives the whole thing, really. It's the, um, it's, it's kind of a combination of those factors. And there's guys that can have, as, you know, as well as I do, it's, it's, you can have one major event. You know, you can have a 9-11 type of event that really impacts you and drives you to the point of where I was at, you know, where you want to kill yourself just because of what you went through. Or it can be those, those little accumulated things. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Steve Click, call him Clicker from, from the Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. He's like the first responder liaison. And he calls those ducks and bears. He goes, you can have one bear or you can have a million ducks pecking at you. And, and it all leads to the same thing ultimately. You know, it's, it's just, you get to a point where you can't deal with it anymore. And the statistics we're looking at are horrifying. You know, when you've got police and firefighters killing themselves at twice the rate as they're dying in the line of duty, we have a problem, you know, and, and that's vastly underreported. What I tell the guys all the time is, you know, do you know anyone who killed themselves? And, you know, there's usually someone in the room that does. And I say, okay, what did, what did the obituaries say? Because I've had friends kill themselves and it says died unexpectedly, died suddenly. It doesn't say he put a gun to his head and shot himself, you know. And that's the problem we run into with these statistics is no one's really, really digging into them and figuring out what's going on. And the numbers that I've heard through the professionals is that we're maybe capturing 40%. You know, so when you think about that, that number we're looking at that's double could be four times. You know, and that's probably more the reality. So... No, I, and I've seen that with my own department, actually. Um, <clears throat> so after the Save the Warrior program, after you went through that, I mean, was there other treatments that you went to? Or, I mean, kind of what was so, your process after that? So, yeah, there was there was some follow-up. And so a, a, a couple of the things. And when I went through the program, one of the um, – one of the things we had to do, and, and we literally did the first day we were there, we came in on a Sunday afternoon and um, we went through the entire process of him explaining the program and, and what it's geared towards. And then we, we were at Ohio State for that portion of it, Newark at the campus there. And then we moved to Warrior Village, which is down the road a bit. And um, we had some dinner and then he said, okay, when you finish dinner, you know, put your plates away, whatever. And we're going to meet in the basement. We're going to teach you guys to meditate. And I was like, oh, fantastic. You know? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you what I told the guy next to me was great. We get to do some Far Eastern voodoo bullshit now. And I was like, I'm like, this is not going to work, right? So I thought it was a complete load of crap. And I went down to the basement kind of thinking that because they have a media room down there. And um, so as I'm going down, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know what, you came here to get better. If they think this works and this is important to it, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to commit to it. So I go sit down and um, we meditated. They let us through a process, 20 minute thing that they actually patented their own form of meditation called warrior meditation, 20 minutes. And when I got done, you know, I want to tell you that like, I had angels singing and shit, but none of that happened. I mean, I was relaxed. I came out of it and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I, I'm really relaxed. I feel good. Um, 
the next couple of times we had to do it because we did it twice a day, they were actually a little rough for me because I was having these really weird fillings and visions, you know, that were kind of creepy. It was almost like a nightmare. And once I got past that point, and then at the same time, you know, we're going through these processes, ripping these scabs off and dumping some of this garbage you're carrying with you. And it kept getting better, you know. Um, so I've been doing that now. Today was my 313th day doing it twice a day for 20 minutes. And it has had a absolutely profound impact on my life. Um, physiologically, the, the first thing I really realized I had gone into the, the medicine cabinet like a, maybe three or four weeks after I got home and I was looking for something and I opened it up and I took injections of Imitrex for migraines. So when I opened it up, I see the syringes sitting up there and I was like, wow, I haven't had a headache since I've been home. And that's continued till today. And I had anywhere from, you know, a half dozen to the 10 migraines a month that were horrific, you know, the, the puking, change in vision kind of things. I haven't had a headache since I started meditating, not one, not even a regular headache. Um, I had chronic neck and back pain, which has completely disappeared. My blood pressure has come way down. Um, the other thing I started doing is because with my background as an engineer, I'm, you know, I, I always want to see numbers. So what I started doing was checking my pulse, checking my blood pressure before I did the meditation and then after to see how it changed. And what I found was my pulse would drop anywhere from 10 to 20 beats a minute. And my blood pressure would go from, from where it tends to run now, like 130 over 80, down to like 100 over 60. So I'm like, okay, this is definitely doing something. And then the other thing it does is it kind of changes. And this is all, it's all neuroscience. You know, they look at this stuff now. They're able to do brain scans and see the way it actually changes your brain. And, and it's pretty remarkable. It, it forms um, new dendrites for your nerve endings. It actually increases your cognitive abilities. So your memory improves. And, and that really came to a head about probably about two weeks ago. I had read this book that was, it was kind of unusual. It was, um, it was a story called, well, the book was called 12. And it was told from 12 different characters' points of view. So you got to see their intimate, you know, what was going on in their head. And then you got to see how other people thought of them. And as I'm telling my wife about this book, because I, I was like, this was really a cool book when I finished it. I remembered every single character's name, you know, and I remembered all these minor little details that, that a year ago I went up. I would have had a general idea. I could have told her, you know, this is what the story was about. And here's what happened. But for me to remember all those names, I was like getting excited. I'm telling her about it. And I'm like, and then and Maggie did this. And I'm like, oh, I remember her name. And she's like, why are you so excited about this? I'm like, because I never would have remembered this before. You know, you see the changes it makes. And, and now that I've studied more and know about it, I, I know what it does, you know, because I've studied the science behind it now. And, and it's amazing what it does for you because, you know, it it takes those portions of your brain specifically like your amygdala, that reptile brain, the fight or flight that makes us hyper aware and it damps that down and it ramps up the frontal cortex, which is the part that has the memory and, and the thought processes and, and lets you be more logical really is what it does. You know, so you don't react to things the way you used to. Things that would have really, really upset me before don't anymore. You know, I, I, it takes a lot to rattle me now. You know, 
Now, you were using a warrior mindset program Correct. initially. Is there any other apps that you're using now? Anything that you could recommend to the listeners? Yeah, so so the the actual – is there any way for you to share links later? Can you do that? I, I have that ability. I'll put okay, it on the uh, on the 25 page for everyone. Outstanding. So we can do that. The um, the warrior meditation video, they actually did a whole series where they meditated, right? And they taught the program. And the, one of the executive, well, the executive director of the program, Adam Carr, actually did a fantastic video that's like 46 minutes, but 20 of it's the actual meditation he leads you through. And the, the app that we actually use is called Insight Timer. And it's available on, on iPhones and on Androids. And it's very basic to set up. And what I can do is I can, I can actually share some documents with you. I actually created a document to show people how to set it up just to make it easier. Um, not everyone my age is tech savvy, you know, including me. So I figured it out and gave it to everyone else. And, and I've been, um, I've, I've done lectures at, several of our area fire departments and actually taught them meditation. I've got a few guys that have continued it and it's amazing to hear their stories, you know, because you look at this and I'm thinking, this was just crazy. How does this work? And then I started sharing it and I'm like, I drive people nuts with it, honestly, dude, because I'm like, you got to do this. You got to try this. And every time I lecture and I did, um, I've been working with our police department. I do yearly jail update training for them. And last year I started doing a, a PTSI thing. And as I work this in this year, now I've, I've got them on the meditation. I don't have the time or the luxury there to teach them, but I give them all the resources and, and basically beg them to try it. You know, tell them, give it a week, see how it works for you. You know, so that's, that's honestly, that's been one of the, um, the biggest things for me, there's a, there's a couple other things that have really helped too. Um, one was we go through a, we have what they call bucket work. They give us stuff to take away with us that we have to, we have to continue to work on to keep our improvements. And one of mine was attending adult children of alcoholics meetings. So it's adult children of alcoholics, dysfunctional families. It's actually a 12 step track program that you go through with partners. And so three of the guys that went through my cohort with me have, have been undertaking that process over the past almost year now. And we've got through the basics and now we've moved on to another portion of the program. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. You're, you're cataloging um, what went on, documenting it, recognizing that it happened and then, you know, letting go of it and moving on. So that's, that's actually helped a lot. And then the other thing is just the, the reading. You know, they gave us a whole reading list. They encourage you to continue your studies into this and, and learn more about the process. And there's, there's some fantastic books. I can share that reading list with you as well. And the one that's, that's really impacted me, and I've had multiple people read it now with the same type of results, is by an author named Michael Singer. And it's called The Untethered Soul. And it's basically, if I had to boil it down to like 30 seconds, what it would be is, as, as individuals, we form mental frameworks about how our life should function, and we don't like anything to change that. So whenever we get hit, you know, with, with you know, like maybe Jim doesn't act the way I want him to today, you know, or my wife says something that bothers me, we create a problem. 
you know, and a lot of times it never even existed. You know, and you've seen this in your life, I'm, I'm positive, everyone has, where you create this whole narrative about what's going on because someone said something and maybe that's not what happened at all. Maybe they were just saying something, you know, they didn't mean anything by it or they didn't even realize it impacted you. And the whole premise of this book is that we create like 95% of our own problems by trying to control the past and the future. And you have no hand in either one of those things. The past is the past. Once it happens, you have to let it go. You know, and getting to that realization and being able to practice that and do it has been immeasurable to my mental health. It's, it starts as simple as, you know, when you're in traffic and someone cuts you off, instead of getting mad and ruining your whole day over it, just let it go. You know, recognize that it happened and it's gone. You know, move on to the next thing. And it's, it's so basic, really, when you think about it. And it makes perfect sense. But, you know, I'm an intelligent guy and it just, it just never struck me that way. I'm just like, I'm angry about nothing all the time. You know, and then you really start looking at this and you're thinking, wow, I'm letting things that already happened control my entire life. You know, or worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, you might as well try to control whether the sun's going to come up or whether it's going to rain. You know, it's going to happen regardless of what you think about it. And that's how most of life is. You know, the people we deal with are going to do the things where they're going to do. And you can't control that. The only person you control is you and not even yourself all the time, you know. So it's really kind of coming to that realization. And there's a multitude of other books on that list that have been really impactful on me. Um, One's by, uh, he's probably the leading trauma expert in the entire world, Bessel van der Kolk. And he wrote a book called Body Keeps the Score. And it talks about how, you know, like I told you about my neck and back pain going away, about my migraines going away. That's all stress I carried from all this past garbage I was carrying around. And once I got rid of that and went into this meditation practice where I can center myself and be calm, just that two times a day for 20 minutes where I, I bring myself down shut off that amygdala that's trying to tell me I got to fight everything. And, um, you know, recognizing those types of things has, has really changed everything for me. And just to, and it goes way beyond that. You know, if, if you read this book, it's, it's got a lot of science in it. And he's, you know, like a multitude of illnesses that people suffer from. You know, a lot of immunoresponse stuff, you know, you get, get people who are suffering from fibromyalgia or a lupus type disease, and just certain practices can, can change that for you and make it so much better, you know, even pain. So the, um, and, and that book talks about the meditation as well. It's, it's really becoming mainstream science now with, with, especially with the brain scan technology. Because before all they could do was, was, you know, a supposition or a hypothesis that this may be happening. And now they can see it. You know, they, they run these people through meditation and they see over a course of, you know, eight weeks or a couple of months where, where your brain literally starts to change in the way it functions and the way it reacts to certain stimuli. So, you know, before I knew any of that, like I said, I thought it was the Far Eastern zombie bullshit. And I'll tell anyone that, you know, I'm, I'm the best salesman you could ever find for something like this because I was convinced it was complete garbage. You know, I had, you don't know what you don't know, right? And, and I thought I knew everything. You know, I was an idiot. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. <laughs> all right. I'm not even going to debate you on that because I feel, actually, I feel the same way. Yeah, I feel the same it. way. Uh, I can sell anything. Um, right. 
let me ask you this. So at some point you begin to talk about this. Yeah. And that can't be an easy thing to do either. At what point did you decide to talk like to, to your members and, and how did, how did that all go? That was the first couple of times I did it, dude. I'm not going to lie to you. It was rough. I mean, I had a hard time getting through it at all. And the, um, Part of the process when you go through the Save a Warrior program is they want you to become a statesman, you know, and, and go back and, and now start giving the stuff away that you learned. That's part of the healing process. What they tell you is you get yours by others getting theirs. You know, you, you watch other people heal. You lead them down the road to getting this help, and that actually helps you as well. You know, it's, 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 it, it really works when you can see other people start to recognize their stuff and, and then be willing to admit it. So when I came back to my department, um, one of the first things I did was I've got three battalion, actually four battalion chiefs. And I called them in individually and I spoke with them. And I told them the whole story, you know, about what I had gone through. Just kind of to gauge how they reacted to that. And one of the most incredible things that happened was one of the guys that I would have thought would have, would have really been like, um, you know, because he's always been kind of my sounding board, the guy I'm talking about. I would have thought that for sure he would have been the one that would, you know, you dude, don't do this. It's a bad idea. And he called me later that day and he said, I want to thank you for sure and that that was incredible. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to take it to the whole department. He said, that's a fantastic idea. And I was like, wow from you and you're the guy I expected to fight it. And everyone kind of reacted to it well. Um, so I talked to all three of my chefs and I had a hell of a time getting through it. I mean, there was a, there was a lot of, you know, breaking down and having to stop and, you know, crying, losing my voice, all kinds of stuff the first time I did it. And um, I talked to all of them and, you know, I, what I heard from some other chiefs and, and this kind of amazed me, not all of them, but a few of them were like, you know, you're going to make yourself look weak. You're going to damage your credibility. And I, you know, it was kind of like the only reaction I could have to that was like a one finger salute. Really? I mean, like, honestly, I'm like, I don't care about that anymore. I don't care if, if someone thinks I'm weak, if I can help someone, that's all that matters. And, and that's honestly where I'm at, you know? This is, it's become my life mission, honestly. And so um, I've gone through a whole process of change with this where I can, I can tell the story and, and the best way I can relate it is in the Save a Warrior program, they do this kind of neat thing. They've got a, um, a video by Mick Hucknall of Simply Red. And he had that song, Holding Back the Years in like 89. And it's literally about childhood trauma. His mom left the family when he was six years old. And they show us this video first where he's singing in Amsterdam and he's singing this horribly tragic song, you know, about his family was abandoned and everything. And he's happy and he's smiling and he's, you know, getting people up to sing with them. And then they show the video that was original that he created in, and they call it London, you know, cause that's where it was filmed. And he tells the same story through the song, but the, the video is very dark. You know, everyone's leaving him in the video at the end, he's in a train by himself riding out of London and it's just everything's dark and cloudy and stuff and the amazing thing about that was when he filmed that video he was number one in like 30 countries 
and he had complete creative control. He could have done anything with that, and that's what he chose to do. And so the, the way they describe what we're talking about is when I used to tell my story, I was in London, okay? So I was in that dark place where I'm just crawling out of that hole and trying to recognize what's going on. And now I've gotten to the point where I can tell it from Amsterdam, you know, where I'm beyond it now. And I know that by telling my story, like I said, you know, people get theirs by watching others get theirs. And, and my hope is that by telling the story and, and specifically, you know, because of my rank being a chief, my hope is that, you know, some of these young guys or, you know, some of the leaders are going to start stepping up and, and taking away that stigma, you know, because I think that's the worst part of the fire service and, you know, police, any first responder group, veterans, the same thing. It's just what you said, that suck it up type attitude, you know, and that doesn't work. You, when you get to the point where, where this stuff is dragging you down and impacting your life and you have, you know, other concurrent stuff going on where you've got an alcohol, drug, porn addiction, gambling, whatever it is that you're using to, to blunt that pain, it's too late to suck it up. I mean, you need some help and you need someone, you need to recognize that you need help. If your friends are going through this, you need to step up and say, dude, why don't you go talk to someone, you know, go with them if they need you to, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to see anyone that I know kill themselves over something like this. That's, that's fixable, you know, and, and I don't think a lot of people, including me, you know, when I was going through it, I didn't see it as fixable. It was just, it was just the way I was, you know, and I was always going to be that way. And I was tired of being that way. I don't want to do it anymore. And I think that's the point people get to. And it, sometimes it happens overnight and sometimes it takes, you know, like in my case, 45, 50 years, you know, to get to that point. And it just, at some point, you can only put so much shit in a bucket, man, before it over starts overflowing. And that's what happens. And I got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And so that's why I do what I do. I mean, that's, that's the simplest answer I can give you is that I'm in a good place now. I'm happy. I could, I could honestly walk away right now, you know, and, and do my own thing and be a perfectly happy human being. But in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, if someone doesn't talk to them, they're never going to know, you know, they're never going to recognize that, that they can get better and that they can get help. And the, you know, that's, it's become my mission. Honestly, that's, if someone told me today, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour to go do this full time, I would walk away. I mean, that's the truth, you know, because I would do it for free if I could, you know, but I'm not at that point in my life yet. I'm getting there, but. Four years and a drop. Yeah, I got, I got two years and nine months left. I'm <laughs> getting right. close, man. <laughs> right. You know, but if there's anything I've learned, it's that you can't count on that time. And you know what I'm talking about, you know, from your own experiences, you know, you can, you can, you know, suppose that you're going to have that and you can make all these plans. And what is the, the thing, you know, make plans and, and watch God laugh at you. You know, because we never know what's going to happen. I could, I could walk out the door tomorrow and get hit by a truck, you know. So it comes to the point where, um, you know, an, another good point that, that Michael Singer makes in that book, Untethered Soul, he's got an entire chapter that's literally about death and how death equalizes everyone. And basically what he talks about is if, 
it's that song live like you were dying the country song if you had a week uh, tim, left, tim mcgraw right yeah exactly yeah. if you had a week left in your life what would you do you know what were the things that you would think were important and if those are the things that are important when you know you're going to be gone why aren't you doing them now you know that's what it all comes down to you know the the spending more time with your family and, and going out and doing things that you really enjoy and and too many of us delay that stuff we put it off and then it, it's too late you know and and i don't want to i don't want to leave my kids with a bunch of regrets that's what it comes to so you know for for right now i'm doing what i love and this is a big part of it you know the the talking to different people and helping them doing stuff like interacting with you this is fantastic this opportunity you know and i know you have a pretty wide audience and and hopefully through this and, and the stuff i give you and the talk i had maybe it'll influence someone to say you know what i can get help you know it's okay for me to admit that i have a problem and and that's my only goal i mean honestly i feel like there's so many walls that we have and right. and i haven't been doing this as long as you but it's pretty tough to break those walls down especially when you're a firefighter and you're working your way up right you being who you are and the position you're at you breaking down that wall actually makes things a lot easier for everybody underneath you that's it's, my hope it's how i view it and and talk about getting rid of the stigma i mean when you're able to show vulnerability and you're able to to share your story i mean it really makes it okay for everybody else to do that and that's that's huge so the amount of courage to do that i mean i i absolutely applaud for that appreciate that my um that's the only time and and, and i'll tell you this the the lectures that i go out and do in the groups that i talk to the only time i get i i start to feel like a twinge of anger <laughs> is when i'm talking about that you know because I like, I look out in the audience and I, and I see lieutenants sitting there and I see captains and I see chiefs. And I'm like, you know, my thing is, are you talking about this? And if you're not, you should be. And then I start getting agitated because I'm like, we all need to be doing this. This is huge. Even the, um, I even talk a little bit about those unofficial leaders, you know, the firefighters that everyone looks up to. And we all have them. You know, and a lot of times they have more influence than, than a chief does, you know, because those are the guys everyone looks up to. Those are the guys who need to start talking about this and saying, look, guy, if you're struggling, go get some help. Don't get yourself to a point where it, you think that it's, you can't fix it anymore. You know, it can always be fixed. I'm, you know, like I'm a prime example of that. You, you can't get any much, you know, any worse than, than being, you know, a month and a half from killing yourself. And by the time I went to save a warrior, it was, it was two, three weeks, you know, and, and that's the point it was at. And when I look at now, I'm horrified because I'm thinking, you know, how that would have impacted my family, you know, long-term. I wouldn't, you know, I'd be done. But when you, when you look at what you do to the people you leave behind, and we've all seen it. Anyone that, that kills himself leaves this like ripple effect that goes out so far. And, and damages so many other people. And when you're at that point, like I was, it's, it doesn't even cross your mind. I mean, it's, you know, people say, how can you be so selfish? And it's like, I didn't see it that way. You know, I just saw I wanted to stop hurting. You know, I wanted to stop feeling nothing. 
And once you get to that point and recognize it and you're past it now, and I can see what was actually going on, it's, it's horrible, you know? And that's why I go out and do these talks. I wanna make sure that anyone that's feeling like that starts thinking, maybe there's some help. And I've, and I've already seen, if, if I could have helped one person by all of this, that would, I would have been perfectly happy with that. But what I've seen is, is multiple, multiple people now reaching out to me and to other sources, you know, asking me, what do I need to do to get into this program? You know, how do I get to save a warrior? How do I, who do I talk to to go to the first responders bridge retreat? Um, you know, who do I call to get counseling? And every single one of those just, just, you know, it fills me with joy because I'm thinking someone's going to get some help here, you know, and maybe that'll make the difference. And, and maybe, you know, 10 years from now, you know, they're still going to be here. And they're going to be talking to people about this and, and spreading this. And if we can, if we can do that, instead of having that ripple effect of someone killing themselves, now have the ripple effect of someone got better. You know, I got better, you can too. And then that guy gets better and he tells other people. And, you know, the, the stuff that I'm teaching now, the meditation and, you know, looking into these books, I've, you know, I've got, I've got multiple people reading that book now. You know, my wife read it, helped her a lot. Um, I've got a couple of friends that are reading it and I haven't heard anyone that's, that's read that book and said, you know, I wasted my time. It's all like, wow, this makes perfect sense. And, and it's not enough just to read it. Of course, it's like anything, you know, you got to read it and apply it. Um, but it's so simple and, and the meditation is the same way. There's nothing to it. It's so easy to do, you know, and it, and it really changes things for the better. Well, you kind of mentioned getting assistance through the Save the Warrior program. Could you kind of actually share how our listeners could, if they wanted to look into it more, get some more information? Yeah, could so they go for that? they have a, um, a website. It's savealwarrior.org. And you can go onto the website. They have some information about, you know, what the program's about and, and what they do. And then they have an application where you can go and apply for the program. And it's for, it's for police, fire, EMS, first respond, or, um, dispatchers, veterans, anyone's eligible for it. And is, is it just in Columbus? Is sorry? it just in Columbus or are there more of them? It's in, it's, well, it's in Newark and it's in Malibu, California, but they're consolidating it right now. They're in the process of moving to Hillsboro, which is down by Cincinnati. And I think by the first of the year, it's actually going to be down there exclusively. They got a much bigger property. So they've got more options of what they can do with it. So the only thing they ask you to do is get there. They don't charge you for anything. It's, it's all donor funded. So you're talking about anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500 to put a guy through this because of, you know, all the stuff they got to pay, all their overhead. Sure. And, and they give it away. It's an amazing thing. Um, and I don't get a lot into describing what happens. You know, you can, you can look at the website and it tells you some of the stuff that, that you'll potentially go through there. But um, I do that on purpose. It's, it's kind of like, I don't want to tell you what's going to happen and, and have you form all these opinions of what will work and what won't work. I'd rather have you walk into it with, with no expectations and just ride through the process and 
it's it's amazing how it works, dude. I mean, you've got right now they're they're getting close to thirteen hundred people they put through the program, and they've got a ninety nine percent success rate. They've only had um, four people kill themselves. Three of them had substance addictions that they refused to get help for, and the fourth one had had some very you know serious mental issues. And when you look at um, that kind of success rate with people that were in my place or, you know, had suicidal ideation. There were multiple, multiple people in the program that went through that actually tried to kill themselves and failed, you know, for whatever reason. And, and that in itself is kind of a story, you know, for me to hear multiple stories from different people that literally put a gun to their head and pulled the trigger and the bullet misfired. I'm like, come on, man, you know, someone had their hand on you something was going on there. I've been shooting my whole life and I've had a handful of misfires, you know, and including 10 years in the military. And I'm thinking that just doesn't happen. You know, so someone wasn't ready for you to go yet, you know, and, and it kind of goes along with the same thing. If you've listened to, I think there's like a half dozen people that survived jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge. And every one of them that talks says as soon as they left the deck, they regretted it. You know, they wanted to take it back, but, it, you know, it's too late then, and they ended up surviving. But um, I think that's the place that most people are probably at when they do this, you know. They think that it's, it's going to be the answer, and as soon as you complete the act or, you know, you pull the trigger or you, you make those cuts or whatever your process is, it's, it's probably a lot of regret instantly for the people that, that survive long enough to realize what's going on, you know. And... Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to see that happen to anyone. So the, um, the program, as I said, it's, it's very unique. It's, it's a different kind of program. And um, there's, there's people that have gone through this that, that I know personally and I've talked with that had tried literally everything. You know, I was looking today, we have a, we have a Save a Warrior alumni page that, that all the guys who go through the program can, can go on there and post. And it's amazing. There was, a, there was a guy in there today talking about all the counseling he went through with the VA, with all the different meds they put him on. He went through EMDR, all this different stuff, and nothing worked for him. And he went to this program, and now he's doing fantastic. You know, and it's, it's a testament to the founder, Jay Clark. He's just an incredible guy. You know what? He put this together um, and he tells you, he, you know, he stole all these little pieces from all these different cultures and, and, and things and put them all into one neat little package. And it just works. That's the only way I can describe it. You know, it's, it's, it's like the meditation. I don't know why it works. It just does, you know, and, and that's why I, I'm hesitant to share too much about it at any given time because I don't want to influence you, you know, sure. someone out there who's watching this video and thinking, you know, I, I need help. Maybe this can help me, you know, and, and I would encourage anyone. What do you got to lose? It's three and a half days. You know, they've got it down to that short of a time period. You arrive on Sunday morning and you're home by Thursday. You know, any one of us, especially in the fire service, that's not a tough one, right? I mean, you get a day trade or something and, and you're good to go. You know, take a comp day or something. It's worth it to save your own life. No, that's that's huge. I, I appreciate you sharing all that, uh, and I'll make sure I have all the links on the website. Absolutely. Uh, if you can, I know you've already 
essentially said it, but I, I really think it's important because I know there's chiefs out there that listen to this. Mm-hmm. And, and I really do believe that if they're able to open up and they're able to be honest and they're able to talk about how behavioral health is now accepted, we can talk about it. We can get help right. and it's not punitive. We're not, you're not going to lose your job. We can work with you. We want to work with you. Um, if you could just touch on that, give one more message to all these chiefs to say, what are you waiting for? You know, yeah. hope, talk like about I, it. So, so like I told you, this is, this is the one time when I, I started to get a little worked up and a little angry because I've seen it, you know, I've seen it firsthand where, where you have chiefs that, that don't want to do it because, you know, they're afraid of, of looking weak or they're afraid of, you know, there's going to be a cost involved with this and stuff. And my answer to you is what's the cost of a human life? You know? Yeah. You might, you might lose a guy for a couple of weeks while he goes through some counseling. Um, But you need to be as a leader reassuring them that if you go down the other route, I mean, let's, let's think about it the opposite way. Right. So I told you about, um, you know, that we had almost 5% that committed domestic violence. When I talk to the police, when I drill this into their heads, I'm like, you're afraid you're going to lose your gun because you admit you're struggling. What's going to happen when you go home and beat your wife? You know, then where are you at? You know, you're going to lose everything. Um, when you get to the point where you're so angry on a call that you make the wrong decision, which we've seen, right? You're carrying around all this anger that you're not resolving. The leaders absolutely need to step up and have a program in place. And, and I'm as guilty as anyone else. You know, until I went through this, I, I basically we had the employee assistance program and I've been working really hard on putting some together. And like I said, the COVID is just like put a damper on everything. But but I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to develop some policies and we kind of need to, um, you know, pull the lid off this Pandora's box and open it up and let the shit that's inside out and start recognizing that we as leaders need to need to be out there and say, look, it's OK to have problems. And if you come to me, it's not going to be the end of your career. We're going to get you the help we need. But there's the other side of it, right? If you don't come to me and you make that decision to, to kill yourself, then now you've, you've impacted not only you, but everyone that knows you, you know, and, and it's just not, it's frustrating to me, you know, because it's, I get that it's hard for some people to talk about, I really do. Because like I told you, it was really hard for me at first. But there's plenty of chiefs out there. And I'm actually looking now, and I've talked to a couple of the chiefs that went through Save a Warrior program about starting a support group in Ohio just for chief levels, because they're not going to talk to someone. They're not going to go talk to a firefighter about their issues. And they've got nowhere to turn. And, and if these guys start admitting that, that they're, they're vulnerable, you know, open it up a little bit and saying, look, you know, I had problems too, you know, and I went and talked to someone or I went through this program and I got help. Um, it just makes it easier for everyone. You know, they look at what I tell them all the time, you know, I point at my chief thing on my shirt and say, this didn't save me from anything, you know, but maybe by talking about it now and maybe that'll help you. I don't care about that. It, it doesn't matter to me. You know, it really doesn't. What matters to me is making sure that the people that are in my care are taken care of. And, and if we can all get to that point and develop that level of empathy for the people that are, that are serving our communities and doing everything for us, 
it's only going to make things better. You know, um, it's, it's time to stop ignoring it. That's what it comes down to. We've done that for far too long and, and it shows in the numbers. You know, like I said, we, we've, how long have we worked on, you know, making sure that everyone's cared for as, as far as the cancer thing, you know, making sure they have the proper gear and we're putting diesel captures on our, on our things and everyone's washing their stuff now instead of walking out with a black helmet. Um, we put all those resources into that. And at this point, we brought those deaths way down, right? But we're not doing it with this. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. Got to step up, guys. That's all. Yeah, you're definitely on to something. So I, I appreciate all this, Chief. I'll get you out of here. If you don't mind, if you're up to it, would you want to share uh, your information? So if somebody wanted to reach out, if they wanted advice. Oh, absolutely. They can so I can, I can be reached a couple different ways. Um, I'm going to give you my cell phone. That'll make it much easier for you. The cell phone number is 216-224-4718. And I'll give you two different emails. My work email is D as in David Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N at C-L-V-H-T-S.com. So it's D Freeman at cleveheights.com. And then my home email is fire Freeman, F-I-R-E-F-R-E-E-M-A-N at Juno, J-U-N-O.com. And you can absolutely reach out to me, you know, if, if it's just for information on any of the things I talked about, or if, if, you know, say you're a chief level, even if you're a firefighter, if you want to remain anonymous, text me. I'm not going to try and get your name out of you. Just tell me what you need, you know, and I'll try to direct you to the resources that can help you. Perfect. You yourself, my friend, are a resource. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you, that. Absolutely. And I appreciate you doing this. You're, you're reaching a lot of people through this platform, and it means a lot. I hope so. I mean, I have the same attitude as you. If I help one person. Exactly. All worth it. All worth it's it. huge. All right. Well, again, thank you for your time this evening. He's Chief, Chief David Freeman, Cleveland Heights. I'm Jim Bernica. And we're out of time. So, for my listeners, I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Take care. Jim. You have a good night, sir. All right. Thanks, sir.